Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. We're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Gregor. Bradley. My dad called me Bradley. That sounds a little formal, doesn't it? Well, Bradley, I could call you something else. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I can only imagine, Greg, what you're going to try to call me and... We, we've gotten an explicit rating in the past. I don't think we want another one of those. I don't so know we'll why, just, but. Okay. Okay. So uh, back up the beer truck. So doing what we do as silviculturists, mm-hmm. what do you do when you don't have a good answer for a question? Well, let's see. Uh, Michelle tells me that I do make up a lot of answers, but I really just tell her that's part of being a forester. You kind of have to be a generalist and know a little bit about a lot of different topics. So I just call it professional judgment. However, she says it's really just code for being a know-it-all. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think we call that the uh, always certain, often wrong school of forestry. Yeah, that's probably accurate. Yeah, And I, I have to admit, I once had a fellow forester tell me in all seriousness that blood root was really called butley faster. What? It's not? I, and, it's, and it's not. I, who knew? Who knew? Well, if I answer that question seriously, there are other options when you don't know the answer. Uh, You could always say, it depends. You know, that's a really famous uh, silviculture reason uh, for getting out of anything, really. True. Uh, But there's another option, right? Uh, Yes, of course there is. I think the best option is you stick with what you know. And if you don't know something... You say, I don't know. Exactly. Now, I recently had some questions about how we integrate carbon considerations into silviculture. And I have to admit my best, but my best answer was good question. Brad, I suspect that you and I and most of our listeners might be in the same boat. So to help us get up to speed on forest carbon, our guest today is Dr. Alexandra Kosiba with the Vermont Department of Forest, Parks and Recreation. Allie works with the Securing Northeast Forest Carbon Program, a cooperative effort by the state foresters of New England. The program's goal is to secure carbon on private forest lands. And as part of this, Allie has done some excellent work teaching foresters about the fundamentals of forest carbon. Nice. This is going to be a whole lot better than making stuff up. And It's going to actually be part one of a two-part series on carbon. So we're going to talk with Allie today about the fundamentals of forest carbon. But then on the next episode, we're going to get into some real details about silviculture and carbon. And if you're listening to this episode, you're eligible for continuing education credits. So if you're looking for SAF continuing education credits, if you're a cooperating consulting forestry in Wisconsin, you can get credit for it. Or if you're looking for CE credits anywhere in the United States, let us know. Check out the Silvacast website to learn more about this. Allie Kosiba, welcome to Silvacast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, Allie, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, uh, tell us a little bit about you and your career. 
Sure. Well, I'm currently the climate forester for um, Vermont Department of Forest Parks and Recreation, and I proudly say I'm the first climate forester in the state. There have since been a few of them um, in other states, but really I focus on um, climate change, uh, impacts to forests, ways we can manage our forests for resilience and adaptation. Um, And a lot of my work focuses on forest carbon. How can we uh, manage for it better? How can we incorporate it into state policy um, to meet our, you know, net zero emission goals um, and all sorts of things like that. So mostly science education and my background, I'm a forest ecologist and tree physiologist. um, And I really, my background is in how trees and forests are impacted by climate change and other stressors. And what are the things we can do as managers and foresters to sort of reduce some of those vulnerabilities and, and, and increase resilience. Wow. And I know from listening to some webinars recently that you're also involved with the Northeast Forest Carbon Program. So what is that program? Yeah, so that's a program that's been funded by um, the USDA Forest Service State and Private Forestry um, Northeast Midwest Program for the Landscape Scale Restoration Grant. And Charlie Levesque is, uh, applied for a three-year grant to provide education and resources to landowners and foresters about forest carbon and forest carbon offset markets and payment programs to sort of understand how those work and um, better set up landowners to, for success. Um, and we kicked off the program last fall, winter. Um, and one of the parts of this is we have a state in each one of the seven states. So it's all the New England states and New York. Each one of the seven states have a state agency point person that is the point person for landowners and, and consulting foresters on forest carbon, and forest carbon information. And we also have a really great website you can check out called northeastforestcarbon.org, clearinghouse of tools, resources, information for landowners and foresters. Well, it sounds like a cool program that we could emulate in other parts of the uh, country. That's really cool. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's the hope. Hey, Allie, I'm going to ask you uh, just a more general question. One of the things we oftentimes like to ask our guest is, how did you get involved in forestry? Because it always has interesting answers. Yeah, so I've always been really involved and interested in the outdoors and 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 science, really, like how things work and how um, like the inner workings of trees and plants and how those trees and plants work together. Um, but really, the catalyst for me, I actually was able to study abroad um, in college and went to uh, Australia, which has. The northeast part of Australia is the only part of the country with tropical rainforest. Um, And that really was just, I just loved the work that they were doing there, the researchers, and they were already looking at, so I'm not going to date myself too much, but they were already looking at impacts of climate change on these forests um, because being so close to the equator the change, you know, a, a smaller change in, in temperature is really mm-hmm. dramatic for these these forests. So it was really cool, really um, set me on a, a path of looking at forests. And I did a lot of work after my undergraduate degree. I traveled around country working various um, kind of temporary jobs for the Forest Service, nonprofit groups, yeah, groups around the country doing work uh, for restoration and, and forest related efforts. Yeah, that's really interesting. You were going to either go into forestry in Australia or maybe marine biology, I think. Like, <laughs> exactly. Right? One of those two. I did get to see the Great Barrier Reef, and that was exceptional. So, Yes, I want to do that someday. 
You know, it's interesting, Allie. Um, it feels like you guys have something special going on with forestry in Vermont too, because it seems like I, like a lot of people I know and really respect in forest management somehow are tied to Vermont. So um, Nancy Patch, you know, mm-hmm. comes to mind, uh, Dave Paganelli, Lou Bushy, Ross Morgan, Tony D'Amato. It's like, you guys are a hotbed of forestry. <laughs> yeah, we are. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, w- I will say too, and I think this is true for a lot of other states, but, but, but even just people here have a, have a really deep connection with our forests, right? It's sort of in our state mm-hmm. motto, Green Mountain State, about our forests, our identity, you know, leaf peepers coming up here in the fall, but also just people are really connected to, you know, walking in the woods or having their own woodlot. Um, and so I think that really helps too, is that there is such a recognition of the importance of forests in Vermont. You know, Brad, when we started talking about this, doing these two episodes on carbon, we thought this first episode really should focus on some of these fundamental questions uh, of carbon and forests. And so that's where, you know, we got connected with you, Allie. And so maybe that's a really good place for us to start today is to talk about some of the basics. And uh, one of the basics that we always run into is terminology. So, and being silviculturists, we really love terminology all the time, but we're not as familiar with forest carbon terminology. So, Maybe that's where we should start today. Yeah, that's always a good place to start. Get all on the same page Um, because there is a lot of, I do see this, there's a lot of confusion or um, sometimes terms are used differently. Um, Right. So that is, yeah, is critical. So we kind of came up with the list maybe as a place to start. And uh, one of those is carbon storage. So could you tell us what that is? Um, yep. So we, yeah, one of the differences is that we uh, measure carbon um, based on weight. So it is the weight of those carbon atoms uh, in the tree or um, the acre of soil, the acre of forest that you're looking at. Um, so when we, as foresters, we are often, you know, looking at trees and we are thinking about the volume of right. that tree. Um, so we measure diameter, maybe height, and we compute a volume. We can do that same thing to measure the carbon in a forest or a tree, um, but we have to then take an extra step and convert that volume into weight. And so for each species of tree, that will be different. Um, so we have certain uh, specific gravity is what it's called, but it's basically that conversion of the volume to weight. Um, we also have to consider is there rot in that tree? Um, Because that affects that volume to weight conversion um, and the amount of carbon um, that is in that tree. So it gets more complicated when we're thinking about deadwood, snags, decomposing things um, in the forest. So is that weight the same as when we hear carbon dioxide equivalents? Is that the measure? So So there's a couple of reasons that we have to use a standard metric when we're talking about carbon. So one of them is that when a tree is taking in carbon dioxide from the air in photosynthesis, it's actually breaking apart that carbon dioxide molecule and it's using the carbon to build sugars, mm-hmm. starches, you know, eventually cellulose and lignin, all those things. So really it's carbon in the tree, but when the um, but when that tree is burnt or it's decomposed by mushrooms or bacteria or just when that tree itself uses that sugar as energy, right? Breaks breaks down that sugar molecule mm-hmm. for energy. 
carb that carbon rejoins oxygen and is emitted as carbon dioxide. So that's it's much easier because of that to put the carbon in a tree into what we call carbon dioxide equivalents. So that's what the amount of carbon dioxide that would be produced when that carbon joins oxygen, if that makes sense. Um, and the other reason we do it is because there's other greenhouse gases that we are concerned with, not just carbon dioxide. We have methane, which is produced by forests um, naturally, um, and there's other greenhouse gases. So we convert them all into the same unit. Because um, really when we're talking about carbon, why we are interested in carbon in a forest is because it can help us reduce the amount of greenhouse gases, specifically carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere, which is what is causing climate change. And so because trees can take in um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, called carbon sequestration, so they're taking um, carbon out of the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, using it to build their trunks and branches and produce leaves. Um, that's sort of, we need a standardized unit um, to compare you know, human emissions versus what the forests and trees are taking in. Um, so that's just easier for us. We call them carbon dioxide equivalents, just the equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. If it's carbon, if it's methane, we put it all in the same unit. Okay. Okay. It sounds like, so the other term that you hear a lot is sequestration and sequestration rates. And I think we've been kind of talking a little, that's like you were just kind of, I think, starting on some of that too, right? Like that's where we're kind of locking the stuff up. Right, exactly. So um, storage is the amount in that thing. Let's just say a tree. Sequestration is the rate that that uh, tree is taking in and storing carbon. Um, so it's it's really um, should be sort of uh, expressed over time, right? So maybe over a year or, or some sort of time frame. And sequestration is, well, if you have sequestration, it means the storage will increase by that amount. Um, so that tree, as it's sequestering carbon um, dioxide from the atmosphere, will increase in its storage over time. So could you see then, so we have trees that are storing carbon, or, or, so when they're storing, they're also sequestering. Um, do they ever emit carbon? Yes. So at the same time that um, trees and forests you know, sequester carbon from the atmosphere, they're constantly emitting. And that's a really natural process that happens um, for really three different reasons it happens. Combustion, so burning, that's probably the easiest one for folks to visualize, right? So, that, um, And then decomposition, which is the breaking apart of, you know, wood basically by, you know, fung fungi or bacteria, insects, all sorts of things like that. Um, that also emits carbon dioxide when it happens. And then it's also just what we call respiration, which is different than, you know, you and I respiring, but it's a similar process in that trees and living things are breaking apart these, uh, you know, photosynthates, these sugars that were produced in photosynthesis and extracting the energy. And that also releases carbon dioxide. Um, so, you know, carbon is not static in our forest. It's really constantly moving. It's very dynamic. Um, and, it, you know, it enters really through the trees and live plants, but then it gets transferred to other parts of the forest. So when leaves fall, in the autumn, right, or shed by deciduous trees, that's carbon leaving the live trees and it goes into the leaf litter carbon pool. So we have these different pools we can think of in the forest, soil, leaf litter, deadwood, live trees, but they're really all connected um, and, uh, and constantly sort of getting, you know, uh, connected with, their, with the carbon that's coming 
you know, from the live trees, but um, will get flux to the other pools. You know, the other term I've heard, um, carbon sink versus carbon source. And so mm-hmm. what would define a, a, a is sink and source in this situation with carbon? Yeah, it's a common way we'll talk about forests. Um, and it's really, you know, it's that balance of sequestration and emissions. And both of those processes are natural in forests. Um, and it's sort of like a, a teeter-totter, right? Like one can be bigger than the other. Um, and so if sequestration is bigger than emissions, you have a carbon sink. And that just means that that forest over time is taking in more carbon than it's emitting. Um, and that's most, you know, that's most of our forests. But there are many reasons natural reasons or human-caused reasons why some forests are a source of emissions. That means that they have more emissions than sequestration. Um, And so, you know, an example is forest fire, right? So many uh, Western states, um, their forests are net sink sources of carbon emissions because they're they burn. Um, but you could have situations where um, you have a stress event. So a drought, which may be, um, if it's severe, it could stop trees from photosynthesizing, right? Um, but they still need to break apart their um, energy sources and have, you know, and grow and, and sort of survive. So they'll still be respiring. Um, so you can have a condition where, um, you know, there might not be very much sequestration. You could have a uh, a windstorm or disturbance event that actually kills trees. Um, and so sequestration essentially goes to zero, right? If say all trees are dead. Um, and then over time that wood will begin to decompose and emit carbon. And it will take a little while for the new trees, uh, the newly recruited trees to sort of grow up large enough um, to to balance that out, but there can be a time period where uh, that forest is a source of emissions. Um, and you can see too, I think this is a critical part when we talk about the sink and source is there's time and space of, in this, right? So it, ta- it talks, you know, it really depends over what time are you talking? Are you talking over, you know, a summer? Are you talking over a year, right? Because um, most of our forests can be sources of emissions during the dormant period when they don't have leaves, right? They still are often using their uh, sugar and starch resources. But over a year, that changes because you have also a growing season where they're actively sequestering. Um, It can also depend on what scale you're talking. Are you talking a single tree? talking an acre? Are you talking a landscape? Um, Because we can have a lot of dynamics in carbon if we look at the small scale, but it sort of evens out uh, a lot more when we look at a larger scale. Yeah, you can see where this accounting of carbon becomes really complex, depending on those scales that you're talking about. I think, Allie, you already touched on it, but as I think about managing a forest, and uh, one of the things that I thought was really useful in your webinar um, that you have out that we listened to uh, was thinking about those pools of carbon in the forest, because that really helps me think about you know, how am I managing? Where am I having the biggest impact? And so can you just touch on that again? Like, what are those major pools um, that we're dealing with in a forest? So the most obvious one are are the trees, the living trees, but we actually do break that down into the above ground portion and the below ground portion. Um, Mm -hmm. And partially that's because of 
how we compute the carbon in those two pools. But I often put that one together and say the live tree pool. But then we also have the dead tree pool. So that could be standing snag, dead snags, uh, logs uh, on the ground in various states of decay. Mm -hmm. Um, we also have the litter pool, the leaf litter pool on the forest floor. Um, and then we have the soil pool. Um, and that is really a pool of carbon that we are, researchers are learning more and more about every day. Um, we're understanding more and more about how much carbon is in the soil pool and the dynamics of the soil pool, how deep carbon goes into that soil profile. Um, so I will say that that's probably one we're learning the most about um, as new research comes out. Is there a general relationship between the pools, like the size of the pools compared to the other, say like, you, you know, Northeast Lake States, Northeast in the United States in general? You know, it really depends on forest type and climate, actually. So if you think of, you know, tropical rainforests, they actually have a heck of a lot of carbon above ground right? A lot of diversity of sizes, big trees, but less carbon in the soil because the climate is so warm, decomposition happens very quickly. Um, compare that to, you know, our sort of neck of the woods where it's colder, we actually can accrue quite a lot of carbon in the soil. And if you go more north of our states too, um, you can get really deep carbon stores um, because the, the climate is cold and you get a lot of um, buildup of carbon um, because of dead plants and leaves and organisms um, that decompose very slowly. So you think there was a tighter link, but um, it really it really depends on, on climate more. When we're in one area, when you look at um, like the relationship, yes, certainly, um, you know, in our states of, you know, in our region, New England and the Northeast, certainly if you can look at um, a forest and there's more above ground biomass, more trees, you're generally going to have more leaf litter, more uh, dead wood, right? So um, that certainly has a correlation and likely more uh, carbon in the soil as well. Do we, I was just going to say, do we know in our temperate forests then what those relative differences are in carbon? Like relatively how much is in the soil pool versus the above ground and below ground live tree pool or so on? Well, you know, I was like, I was sort of interested um, in looking at your state. So I did, I did look up um, the carbon percentages for Wisconsin and Minnesota. And I was curious to see how they compare to Vermont right. and our states out in the Northeast. And this, all these data come from Grant Domke's team at the Forest Service. Um, and so these are all publicly accessible data. You can look up uh, the data for your state. Um, and it's really interesting um, to kind of pull, pull apart and compare. And I was really, surprise how similar the proportions are for Wisconsin and Minnesota compared to Vermont and our Northeast states. Um, it was really quite, I mean, it sort of makes sense, but it was, it was surprising to see. And these are, these are not per acre estimates, but the proportions. So right. you know, for example, um, Wisconsin, um, the amount of carbon in the above, above ground live biomass that's stored is about 30%. Um, and Minnesota, it's 21% and Vermont is 30%. So it's pretty similar um, for above ground live biomass sequestration in Wisconsin is 78% of the total sequestration. Minnesota, 62, Vermont, 67. So like pretty similar, right? You, yeah. just, you know, have mm -hmm. a little bit more, you know, uh, 
Below ground biomass is pretty similar. Um, Wisconsin has storage of 6%, sequestration of 15, very similar across Minnesota and Vermont. Litter, Wisconsin has 5% of storage, 3% litter, similar. You know, where we're really seeing the differences, I would say, is in soil, um, is across our states. And I think that is because you all have some more organic soils than we do here in uh, the Northeast. Um, and so that's where I'm seeing um, sort of the differences across our states. But uh, deadwood, pretty similar, 3% in storage in Wisconsin, 4% sequestration. And uh, in the soil, 54% in Wisconsin is stored in the soil. But emissions are, you're not actually, emissions are about zero um, or sequestration is about zero um, because it looks like there are some emissions from drained organic soils. And I don't know enough hmm. about your states to know uh, what that <laughs> exactly what that is. Right. But Minnesota and Wisconsin both had slight source of emissions from soil from this pool called drained organic soil. So I don't know if that's an agricultural conversion thing or, or what's going on there. But um, but really similar in that 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 you know across those three states, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Vermont, more than half of the total carbon in a forest is in the soil, which is um, wow. really important. But that soils don't change that much. They don't, you know, the, you can't over time, it'll be very incremental change in that storage. So in that, you know, they're not right. they sort of are very consistent, um, which does show us that, you know, the take home from that is to protect soils as much as possible. Right. So it's hard to build carbon in soils, very easy for it to get lost. And what would be the ways that we would lose uh, carbon in soils? Yep. So anything that causes, you know, physical disturbance to soil. So, uh, you know, the biggest one are our road layouts and our equipment use. Um, so being thoughtful with road layout, we have some impacts that are unavoidable um, and we have to, you know, have uh, infrastructure for that. But thinking about, can we use the equipment as a least impact? Um, and how would we do that? Is there timing of when we're entering our woods that uh, can reduce impact? You know, it's getting harder and harder with our winters, but, you know, frozen soils, frozen grounds are, are going to be the best uh, option for reducing that impact. But there are also options of, you know, making sure uh, we're using other things we can, you know, using corduroy branches, uh, limbs on our trails to sort of reduce impact because it's First of all, about, um, you know, when we compact soils, we're actually sort of taking out the air spaces in that soil and we can change decomposition rates. We actually, we can reduce, it can release a lot of methane. Uh, and remember, I mentioned that methane is a, is a greenhouse gas as well and a quite potent one. Um, so that's one of the things that we can really do to control impacts on our soils. Um, you know, anytime we have uh, a place where we have mucky wet soils using some sort of, uh, you know, being very mindful of not, not having impacts. So if you see rutting or anything like that, um, that's sort of a flag to, I'm um, having an impact on that soil and, and, and that, that will lead to carbon losses. And the other one is controlling erosion. Um, that's a huge one. So anytime you see soil erosion, that is carbon that's leaving the forest um, and ends up in our waterways and our lakes and streams and things like that. So stopping erosion is, is really critical for keeping carbon in the woods. Before we leave those numbers, I'm curious yeah. on that dead wood, did you see differences between the states there and the percentage of storage in dead wood? 
You know, that was the one thing. The storage is really similar across the three states. So Wisconsin, 3%, Minnesota, 5%, Vermont, 3 um, And I'd have to look into why this is, but for the uh, change in, in deadwood pools, so the sequestration, so that would be uh, that would be uh, materials fluxing from the live tree pool to the dead pool. So you have branch breakage from disturbance mm-hmm. events, or you have trees die, right? That's how that gets into the deadwood pool. In Wisconsin, that's 4%. Um, but in Minnesota and Vermont, it's 16 and 15%. So that suggests that Minnesota and Vermont are really building the Deadwood pool. And I don't, and in Wisconsin, it's not building very quickly. I don't know what that means. Do you already have sufficient Deadwood? I, I don't know what the dynamics are uh, that to delve into that a little, I, you know, I will admit I've actually never been to Wisconsin. I'd love to see the forest. <laughs> so I can't say what the, or even speculate what the um, dynamics are there. Yeah. And I, I live here. <laughs> I could spec- <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I could speculate on anything, but I don't know either. And I was just curious about that because we have a lot of conversations around, you know, the importance of deadwood within forest and manage forest and how to increase that and protect it, um, those types of things. So mm-hmm. that's really interesting. And I think something maybe to explore in the future some more. I wonder if that relates to markets, you know, like if things would be recruited or they're just simply lost to like, like with pulp markets being maybe strong in some areas versus others. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing that's, uh, you know, interesting about these numbers is they incorporate so much that so they're incorporating what we're seeing in these values now are incorporating, you know, decades of management, land use history on the, those forested acres. Uh, also, species differences, site differences, all sorts of, you know, differences are are sort of wrapped up in these numbers. Um, and we particularly see that with with sequestration because um, most of our states, you know, are still are still recovering from you know, past land use that cleared lots of land of forests. Um, and so we have very rapid active sequestration rates because forests are still sort of in that recovery stage. Um, we know that uh, as forests, you know, sort of as forests age and get older, that rate of sequestration, so that rate that they're taking in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere sort of slows down. Um, so like younger mid-aged forests are the best at sequestering. Um, forests will keep storing carbon through their lifetime until they, you know, really, you know, uh, we know that with old growth forests are still very, very, uh, you know, they're active and they're storing a lot of carbon, but that rate with which they're taking it in overall kind of slows down. Um, So it's, you know, we look at these numbers, we have to incorporate sort of all of that um, land use history into uh, that interpretation, which, you know, is hard to do. I think that rate change is really interesting and has implications for how we manage. So you're saying that uh, young forest, that rate of sequestration is greater, and then it slows down as those stands develop. But you also have to look at the storage. You're saying the storage pool grows, obviously, as that stand ages. So Yep, exactly. So, you know, carbon is just, you know, it's biomass. It's the amount of carbon in those trees. So it's, it's really that right where that weight of carbon, the weight of the tree. So if you look at a a forest that has lots more trees, you know, more dead wood, more mass, just has more stuff, it's going to have more carbon. And so an older forest just 
has more dead wood, has, has deeper soils, more leaf litter, more trees of different sizes and sort of canopy shapes. Um, and so that forest does store more carbon and, and that's a very, you know, natural important uh, role for that old forest, older forest provide us. But we also recognize that that sequestration rate declines. And so when we think about managing for carbon, if it's for these climate goals, we want to have both storage and sequestration. So this is where forest management can come in. How can we sort of maximize both um, or consider both as, as, as good goals to have. Um, and there are lots of ways we can do that. Um, but it's, you know, it's thinking about those trajectories of forests and using civil culture to sort of guide our, our management decisions. I'm, I'm curious about, so it's interesting thinking about that relationship of sequestration and storage and thinking about the age classes that you have present on the landscape and how that impacts it. What about species composition? You know, because I can see like, like say here in Wisconsin or Wisconsin and the upper Great Lakes, you know, Aspen plays a huge role, but I'm always curious about, you know, how does Aspen play versus maybe what we had historically white pine or, you know, some of the other species we have, does, does that play a big role in, in, in carbon storage or sequestration? It certainly does. And there are big differences um, by species. So again, it's sort of thinking about you know, silvics, right? The growth rate of different species and how big they can get. So a white pine, it's just going to be inherently bigger than an aspen, mm-hmm. right? So yep. its maximum storage is going to be much, much greater. Um, but the rate of growth of uh, aspen um, is pretty high. So that would sort of maximize sequestration. White pine can also grow, you know, pretty fast too. So, um, you know, the other thing you think about is uh, a common area of confusion is the difference between a tree and a forest, um, right? So if we think about a white pine and aspen is actually a good example of this, right? If we're talking about one tree of each, uh, that white pine is going to take up more space. Right. So if we think about it on an area basis, you could have more aspen, um, you know, especially thinking about how they reproduce in a clonal system. Right. You could have more aspen on an acre than you could have as far as number of stems, number of trees than white pine. Um, and so that does play a part in, in how we're thinking about um, forests and forest management. Um, so, you know, it's really, you know, whether we should value, you know, manage for one species over others for carbon. Um, it's really about that diversity, right? So maximizing storage, maximizing sequestration as best we can and having the right tree on the right site um, too, because the best option is keeping that tree alive for as long as possible. And then if we can harvest it for wood products that then will store that carbon for as long as that wood is used. That's really, that's the way we maximize uh, carbon um, in our forest. So, you know, making sure that we don't have, um, you know, early uh, mortality um, or lots of mortality um, because of poor management or because of stressors that we can have um, in our forest. So that's also a a key component is what's the mortality rate. Um, Because once we have mortality, those trees are no longer sequestering carbon and actually sort of, they're now a source of emissions. Does it matter? And, and thinking about that too. So, and, and maybe this is just like, you know, me being super simple, but so I'm picking up a piece of white pine versus I'm picking up a piece of oak and you talked about specific gravity. So that white pine is huge, but it's really light wood compared to maybe a smaller tree that's really dense wood. How does that come into play? 
Yep. So that is a, a, yeah, a component. So, you know, generally um, hardwoods are going to have more carbon um, by weight because they just have, they have denser, denser wood, you know, higher specific gravity. You know, that's not always true, <laughs> but yeah, if you think about some of our hardwoods, they're going to have uh, quite a lot of carbon by weight. It's interesting that, um, that uh, conifers actually do have quite a lot of carbon by um, volume um, because they have a lot of lignin in their wood. Um, but yes, so it sort of depends on, uh, but we're looking at weight when we talk about carbon. Uh, and so hardwoods generally, you know, a denser wood is going to have more, more carbon in it. So just thinking about, I'm just thinking again about that live tree pool and what are those factors that impact the amount of carbon in that pool? And we talked about so species differences there and differences, interesting differences, as you pointed out, with hardwoods and conifers. And then when we talked about, you know, just kind of uh, forest health, that those trees are healthy. Are there other factors that come into play on determining that amount of carbon that we see in that pool? Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're talking about the live tree pool, you know, yeah. it's anything that impacts productivity, right? So it's the same things we're thinking about when we're managing for our forest, right? So what are things that 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 increase the health and productivity of our trees? So all those kind of things, right? Site index, nutrient availability, uh, sunlight, um, spacing, right? Um, things like that are, are critically important. And then it's also what are the things that could potentially remove carbon from the system? Um, so that is timber harvesting, right? Because we are mm-hmm. removing wood is carbon. <laughs> We're removing carbon from the system. But it's also things like a defoliation event, right? So that seems sort of minor, but that's you know insects eating leaves of the trees. So that's where the trees photosynthesize. And we know, you know, that if those kind of events happen, the tree doesn't grow very much, doesn't have a lot of extra resources. And so that affects carbon, uh, a disturbance event that causes branch breakage or mortality, right? So that will, that will change sort of that balance of carbon um, in the forest. So there's a lot of different things that can change carbon. And um, it's, ha- it's changing whether we are managing the, car, the forest or not, right? It's naturally changing, as I mentioned, as the forest ages, that relative rate of sequestration is changing, right? As you have um, different events that happen in the forest naturally, those are going to change the dynamics of carbon. So it's it's really, um, there are a lot of things that, that affect carbon. I think it's really interesting, though, you talking about these factors and just for me, having a better understanding of these factors, I think it then comes into play into silviculture and management and how we might be able to tweak that. And I know we're going to get into that in you know, our next episode, but I think th- that really helps think about where some of those points are where I'm, uh, we might be able to you know, tweak that a little bit in the benefit of more carbon storage and sequestration. Yeah, and, and with that in mind, Allie, what are some of the things that, so if we're foresters and we fit, so what are maybe some of the top things we can do as part of our management to, to tweak a forest for carbon? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it is, I think it's a great goal to include, you know, as one of the many goals you'd have in a forest. And I will say that, um, you know, it's important if we want to manage for forest carbon, that it's not a goal that sort of over 
powers the other goals we have in our forest. Um, because one critical part about managing for forest carbon is to making sure we have a, you know, a forest that is resilient into the future. Um, and so we could have a lot of carbon in our forest now and have an uh, sort of unhealthy stand of trees that may be really vulnerable to climate change or, or a pest outbreak. We have a monoculture of a tree um, or very small crowns, you know, tree crowns that are unhealthy, prone to wind throw. That's not resilient carbon that's being stored. It's really, you know, vulnerable to being lost, emitted. So I do think it's really critical um, when we're managing for forest carbon, managing for, you know, what I call resilient carbon, which is thinking about the carbon will be there in the future. So this is also thinking about regeneration and forest health and reducing vulnerabilities. Um, but there are a lot of things we can do to add carbon as a management goal in our forests. And it's really sort of like small tweaks and thinking about um, things you could do slightly differently. Like I mentioned, the importance of soils, right? Protecting soils and just having that as, as a really important goal. Um, reducing residual damage in your woods when you're doing logging. The carbon gains in any one year are probably not big, but over time, if you can reduce mortality from that, that's you know introduced by rot. Um, that's really that's really um, important. Keeping big trees in our forest, we know that big trees contribute disproportionately to storage, um, just because they're three dimensional, huge you know large trees. They they uh, have a lot of carbon storage, but also there's like incredible resilience to having um, large trees because they will produce, you know, have be a seed source, you know, genetic seed source um, for your future forest. So you can sort of pair these carbon goals um, with some resilience goals and, and it can be really uh, effective um, way to think about forest management, you know, in the long term. And, and you know, the question that I've heard a couple of times, at least in conversations, uh, with a on the you know on the tailgate kind of thinking about it is that some some tools were never really sometimes tools that we as foresters were not really comfortable with we we look for reasons maybe to use them or not use them based on a particular thing so fire comes into to mind here mm. so as a forester should I be worried about fire when I'm thinking about climate change that's a great question uh, fire is really natural in many forest ecosystems and and necessary, you know, we have a number of species that require fire uh, for to you know for successful reproduction um, to continue um, their establishment. Um, and so, really, we've changed our thinking about this. Is that we want to have sort of you know naturally moderate or light fires, which perpetuate the forest and promote forest health, um, even though there will be some carbon losses there in the long term. The, there will be long-term carbon gains. It will be a good, good outcome for carbon. So this is again the getting back to the time frame, thinking about management, right? So we do any management in the woods, there are, is going to be carbon losses, right? Removal of right. Uh, wood is a carbon loss. Hopefully, some of it goes into long-term storage. But even if you know some of it goes into, you know, firewood, that is a carbon loss. Um, but if it's done, you know, we do good management in the woods, it allows for recruitment of a new co cohort, you know, increases species diversity, all these things we want to achieve in our woods in the long term, we'll gain that, that carbon back, right? From increased sequestration of younger trees that have more space, more resources, uh, and, and sort of a better, you know, healthier, productive uh, system. So it is, it is sort of hard to 
grapple with that. But, you know, we're used to it a little bit when we think about forest, the forest time concept is that, you know, we can't look at one day or one month or even one year, right? A good goal, if you're thinking about managing for forest carbon, is sort of a long-term goal, maybe 10, 20 years. How can I harvest less than growth, right? So you want over time, either your carbon storage to be stable or increasing. And you could include harvested wood products in that. If you're harvesting, you know, saw timber, tim- you know, things that are going into, uh, you know, structural materials for building, that is storing carbon for the life of that product. Um, and so how can we use management thoughtfully to make sure that our carbon storage is consistent or increasing? Um, and that's one way to do it is harvest less than growth over time, right? So you need sort of a long time frame to, to consider that. It makes me think just this whole conversation, Brad, about other conversations we've had about the importance of landscape level. Right. Allie, you mentioned, you know, you want this balance across your landscape of young forests that are sequestering at high rates and old forests that are storing at high rates. And we don't often do a good job of trying to manage on a landscape level to have that balance. And we've had this conversation around other things like trying to maintain oak across a landscape or something like that. But um, carbon's no different, it seems, that we need to be thinking about that. Yeah, I will say, you know, my answer to what should, you know, what's, what's the best thing to do for carbon is actually to keep forests as forests. That, that's really the answer, because when we look at the proportion of carbon stored in a forest, it's upwards of really depends, but, you know, for in the Northeast here, you know, it's about three or 400 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per acre. The sequestration rate is only about one or two or three metric tons per year, right? So if you think about a forest, um, there's a lot stored in it. And so keeping it, the carbon stored in the soil, keeping that forest growing, that is really the best thing you can do um, for carbon. And then if we can do little tweaks to increase that, that's really bonus. Um, but, but when we lose forest land to other uses, we're losing that stored carbon. Mo- pretty, you know, most of it, if you're thinking about ripping up stumps, tilling soils, trenching soils, and then we also lose that future sequestration that that forest would have provided. So it's sort of a double whammy. Um, so that's really, you know, if we sort of take the <laughs> 10,000 foot view, uh, really critical um, importance of that all landowners who own forests or, or managers of forests are doing. You know, I, I really appreciate this conversation because it, it feels to me like sometimes, like if you look at forestry, sometimes things change like uh, very slowly, sometimes very fast. But in school, we never talked about carbon, at least I, I'm an older person. So, but, but I really, find, I think it's really interesting and fascinating to start to think about new challenges in forestry and how we can apply because we haven't really changed our tools in the last hundred years. So how are we going to apply these tools to these new challenges? So this has been fascinating. Yeah. And when you were talking about your age, Brad, I was thinking of carbon <laughs> jokes, but I'm just not going to go there. <laughs> I, I should have even opened that. that I should have just shut that door. Uh, no, as soon like, as you, oh man, yeah. you're really opening the door there. Yeah, no, I really appreciate this conversation too, Allie, and just kind of walking us through some of those basics because it's it really makes me realize like I can then start thinking about how, what I'm doing for silviculture and management right. when I can understand, you know, just some of those basic elements. 
uh, and not only that, just like just the terminology that is bantied about that you kind of have to have a good awareness of. So, yeah. Yeah, I really do appreciate this conversation too. Yeah, and, and I'm not ne- going to be nearly as naked in conversations talking about these topics now either, because I have to admit, like half of the time I'm like, oh yeah, that's great, no idea what the <laughs> stuff is behind it. So this will be this is fantastic, Allie. This has been a fascinating conversation, and and I, I, I sometimes I think I learn a lot from our guests, but I think I really got a lot out of this conversation. So thank you very much. So if, if, if our guests want to know more about, say, some of the work you're doing or maybe dig into a little bit more of this, uh, I know you've done some really interesting work with the Northeast Forest Carbon Program recently that kind of helped uh, outreach with this. Yes, um, and thanks for having me. It's been very enjoyable. And if um, folks want to check out more information, it is focusing on Northeast, but I think all listeners would find information that they find uh, that relates to their forests. A lot of these things I've talked about are pretty universal across all our forests that we have. And so we have a a clearinghouse of information called northeastforestcarbon.org. There's resources on there for foresters, for landowners about forest carbon. Um, We have case studies, we have links to tools, and ways to estimate uh, forest carbon. And we also have information on forest carbon payment programs and offsets, um, if you would like more information on that. All the recordings of the four webinar series that we've done are are listed there as well. Um, And those will have a lot more information um, that builds upon what we've been talking about here. Yeah, and Allie, we can get those onto the show notes for people afterwards so they can uh, get those links. And that would be great because we know that we're not above, uh, you know, getting information from other people. And you know how that goes, Brad. I know how it goes. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So thanks again, Allie. It's been great. Thank you. All right, Greg, I've got a carbon joke. Okay, let's hear it. All right. How does carbon forestry keep you in suspense? Um, I have no idea. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, uh, that. I got it. I got it. And I, I knew you'd been working on these carbon I, jokes, so I was waiting for something big. I put a little thought into this one, so I, I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> At least it. you stayed away from the carbon dating jokes, so we <laughs> yeah, don't want to well, go there. Well, Maybe in the future, Greg. Don't rule that one out yet. <laughs> don't rule that one out. I thought today was a really great conversation with Allie. So I'm, I'm really going to, you know, be able to use that information. Yep. I was going to say the same thing. I thought it was really good. And I hope everybody got as much out of it as I did, because I thought mm-hmm. it was really good. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for, for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. Remember, continuing education credits are available for listening to Silvacast. Check out the Silvacast website for more information. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Freider, our producer, Noah LeMade, IT master, theme music by Paul Freider, and of course, UW Stevens Points, Wisconsin Forestry Center.